Welcome to Season 2 of Purdue University College of Sciences Superheroes of Science Podcast. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We will be discussing anything and everything related to science. If you have a science question, tweet it to us at Purdue SOS, and we will try and find someone to answer it for you. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we have David Thompson, Professor of Chemistry at Purdue University. So welcome, David. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Doing very well. Yeah. Uh, so, Sarah, Stephen, yes. it's, um, I've not done this before. I'm, I'm really curious to oh. see what, uh, what I can share yeah. about uh, my well, let's start. Let's start. What, what types of research does your group do? What, what, what types of research do you do? We are organic chemists at the core of the laboratory um, capabilities. So what that means is we like to make and break bonds to make new compounds. Almost always, sometimes there's a metal in there. We often use metals to make our compounds, but they're usually just composed of the same things that we are, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, they're organic molecules that we believe will have interesting properties that we are hoping to design into those molecules. In some projects, those molecules are designed to be a drug uh, in other words, a pharmaceutical kind of compound. In other cases, those molecules are designed to actually do a better job of delivering the drug. So that uh, if, let's say, simple comparison, a regular aspirin and a, uh, a what's called enteric coating aspirin, something that releases the aspirin over a longer time period. That's a drug delivery kind of application. Same active drug, just way different um, that it impacts the human body. Uh, so those are two big areas of our research activity. We are also involved in making new materials that we think will be useful for determining structures of enzymes, viruses, something that's in the news these days. Um, many people have probably seen some of the cartoons of the coronavirus. They're actually, many of them that I've seen are, they're not really cartoons, they're kind of low-resolution structures that come from electron microscopy. And that's the uh, area that we are trying to um, impact uh, without getting too deep into the weeds. The challenge, there are many challenges in determining one of the, uh, uh, determining some of those structures. Often a challenge is actually making a decent sample. You may have, you may have a coronavirus sample that you want to look at in high resolution. <clears throat> Pardon me. You can't do it because the sample was not prepared correctly. So 
strategies to do a better job of making the sample. So it's an area where we're active in making new materials. How does someone go through doing that? Pardon me? How do you, how, what's the process? How would you go through preparing a sample of a virus to be able, as you say, to look at? And yeah. or how exactly are you looking at this virus? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so um, I, I'm going to, I'll try to come back at that question uh, in a second. I, I want to, um, in a way, kind of finish framing the idea that very much what we do as chemists is what, um, it's the same thought process as is often used in engineering, where you design it, you build it, you test it, you then go back to the drawing board and you redesign and make something better. So there's this design, test, um, uh, analyze, re redesign. And that's very much what we do with organic compounds as well, whether it's a new drug that we're trying to develop or a new drug delivery strategy, or in the case you're asking about preparing samples for uh, virus analysis. We make a material and then we test to see, can we see the structure of the virus in higher resolution or not? So specifically, we're looking in the electron microscope, one of the explosions that has been happening and I mean that in a good way, one of the, uh, I, I'll, let me change the word, revolutions that is happening in structural biology really uh, began um, in the mid eighties. And the people who kind of built the foundation for that, they were awarded the Nobel prize in chemistry three years ago. Uh, Roger Hinton, uh, Duche and uh, oh, memory test. I can see his face, uh, Frank, um, for developing a technique. And, and basically, what it does is you flash freeze a very thin sample of your um, let's just say virus. And now you need to get that tiny, very thin slab of ice into the electron microscope, which is at a super high vacuum, and shoot electrons through it. And how those electrons interact with the sample gives you information about how to deduce the structure. And I guess this is the only prop I have available is my phone. So if this is the object the beam passes through the sample in this direction. You, you see the projected Im image looks like a rectangle. But if the beam goes through the sample in this direction, it's now the projected image is a different kind of rectangle. And likewise, as the sample is in all different orientations, you get a lot of different projections. You can take those projections and essentially reassemble. You can do a so-called reconstruction of that object, that three-dimensional. 
And that's actually what you're seeing when you see those coronavi uh, coronavirus images are usually reconstructions of microgrids, of electron microscope images where that technique has been used. Now, if the too thick or the virus was damaged in the freezing process or systematically degraded, there can be a million ways that it goes wrong, you end up with a bad sample. And so you just start over. So that's part of what we're trying to do is put into place a more reliable way to uh, make those samples. Here's the maybe a, a useful piece of information. The photograph, um, or at least single particle images that need to be taken to do a good reconstruction, it could be as many as I've seen publications where they took four different particles in different orientations. And now they have to um, figure out all of the particles that were in that orientation, add all those up, take all the ones in this orientation, add all those particles up, and in that way kind of build up the signal to noise, build up the reliability of the information. That's a lot of work. <laughs> And so, how do you? And so, if you made a bad sample, oftentimes you don't know that until you've gone through all the work of isolating it, freezing it, getting it into the electron microscope, and then capturing images. And then you look at the images and you go, oh, it's like back in the day. Now I'm dating myself, maybe some of your instructors. Everyone used to have film cameras and take a bunch of good pictures, and then it would come back, and it's like, oh my God, they're all terrible. Yep. Yeah, somebody was scratching their nose when uh, when the shutter went off. And so, gosh, you have to start over. Uh, this, you'd like to have a more efficient process. That's, that's what is really kind of the heart of Very nice. um, material. So what seeing that help? Pardon me? What does getting a good image of something like a virus, how does that help us understand? What does it help us understand? Oh, wow. Excellent question. So the goal is to get an atomically precise picture. Because if you know, uh, if we stick with the virus example, if you know a particular interaction, here's the cell surface, the cell about to be infected and the virus particle binds to a certain cell surface molecule that allows that virus to be internalized. If you know exactly the shape, it's like knowing the the, ins the structure of the inside of the lock, you know exactly the key to cut that will fit in that lock. And in this case, it's, it's kind of a, in that way, it's a bad analogy. 
you'd like to block that infection by having something bind more strongly than it will bind to the cell. If you can do that, now that virus can never get inside the cell because you've blocked it with a with an inhibitor, with a a drug that will interfere with the normal infection cycle of the virus or the microbe or enzyme that's misbehaving in a in a disease process. So that's what the electron microscope is trying to do is to get precise enough images for us to do a better job of designing drugs to um, improve human health. Okay, so then you work on different compounds that would like fit that lock to use that analogy to is so that yeah. part of what you re you research then just uh, obtaining the picture and determining kind of genetically put the shape of these things. That is where we are trying to get to, and we're trying to develop methods to allow us to get there. There are. Um, you can more or less count on on uh, your two hands the number of structures that have achieved that kind of precision that will allow for design for you to really precisely cut the key. Mm -hmm. um, but the ambition is for that to for us to develop the science and make it robust enough that it actually allow for medicinal chemists to be more um, precise because the way it is has been done and is still done today is through a lot of just testing you isolate you if you want to inhibit an enzyme or whatever um, to, What's a, a good case? Uh, uh, alcohol de You want to inhibit that enzyme for some reason. You know the structure. You know the molecule you have to uh, design. These days, if you don't know the structure, you are often taking libraries of tens of thousands, or if you're a pharma company like Eli Lilly, you have libraries of is as many as four million compounds and it's like the locksmith in the old days if you were locked out of your house they came with a big key ring that <laughs> hundreds of keys and they're there testing the one that gets you in through the door and that's more or less the way a lot of drug discovery still happens today is from that just so the more you can get knowledge about what where this what's the strike zone you know what's the actual size and shape of the target you're trying to hit now you can design you go back to that lock and key i'm kind of mixing metaphors here but go back to that um that lock and now do a much better job of designing the key. Uh, there's two terms that, that we've used and uh, I kind of like to find so that to make sure, especially our younger audience understands the terminology we're using. 
One was uh, you talked about creating compounds, and the other was using en enzymes. And so, yeah, okay. what exactly are these two things? Great question. So, compounds are that's a very generic term, and, and a compound can actually be any composition, it can be any collection of atoms. Uh, most often, especially in the area where I'm active, it's usually referring to a relatively small molecule, relatively meaning it is smaller than an enzyme. An enzyme is typically as many as, it can be thousands of amino acids that are all strung together in a chain. And so they are, uh, that would be a very, very heavy compound compared to most drugs, which are, um, have the, actually, if you look at something like the physician's desk reference, more than, uh, which is a, a, essentially a book all the commercially available drugs, over 90% of those drugs are way less than 700 hydrogen atoms. To put that in context, thousands of amino acids, those are going to be as many as uh, hundreds of thousands. Give you uh, maybe that gives you some bookends to think mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. An enzyme, though, to be precise, an enzyme is essentially it's a catalyst. It's something that will make a reaction go faster, and the body is filled with them. Uh, we as chemists try to make compounds or uh, catalysts that are you're not made from amino acids like enzymes are but we try to make catalysts that are if you can make one that's even half as good as a bad enzyme you're your hero enzymes are the chance that's what we're trying we'd like to be that good and that's what we're hard to try to um, uh, mimic in a artificial uh, with artificial comp or I should say non-natural compounds. So you talked a little bit about with your students and 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 all students really when they go about trying that process of testing and experimenting. And so can you describe um, the process that, that, a, that a student might take with um, thinking of an experiment that they want to try and then what they would, how they would go from there? Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, it usually starts with a, um, with a hypothesis. Uh, we expect that, um, let's say, oh, I'll take a drug delivery example that we can vary the rate at which a drug becomes available in the body, varying part of the structure of our um, 
of our drug delivery system. So it starts with that hypothesis. By, uh, and we'll use an example, I'll use specific examples. Uh, let's say we want the drug to become available in the stomach. The stomach has a lot of digestive enzymes. It's actually low pH. And so you think, oh, maybe we'll use low pH as a way to activate or release the drug. Specific enzyme that we can use to make the drug become released by the, uh, the drug carrier. So that's the core starting point. Then, as chemists, we go in and we design a compound. If it's pH, if we think it's going to be activated at low pH, then we think, oh, okay, this reaction. The, the more, uh, the lower the pH, this reaction goes faster. That's a good uh, reaction for us to build around. So then we, uh, we draw structure, then we go to the lab, we make it. And then once we've made it and proven to ourselves that it's been, then we actually do the test. So that's the part of this design, build, test cycle, design, that's the idea. That's the that's the picture you draw on the whiteboard when you're having the uh, you and the student are having a conversation. You're doing that design piece to build it. That's actually going into the lab and actually, as I started, making and breaking bonds to build the new um, maybe conceptually no different than getting a bunch of dimensional lumber and taking the plans for your house and all that lumber and you fit it together to build a house. You know, it's kind of the same uh, process. Uh, but then, you know, maybe you realize, oh, I put the spacing uh, too far apart on my uh, in my roof and I got a le leaky roof and I, I now I have to go back and and redo that part of my design you know you, that's this uh design build test uh, analyze and and re -design. and so um, in essence the process and the uh, uh part of what makes it interesting is to figure out uh, where uh, the right strategies to uh, to get you the answer that you're um, you're trying to the, to answer the question uh, that you've raised or the hypothesis that you're trying to test part of the way you design your testing strategy is to get to that answer as quickly as possible because you know, uh, it's the most limited element, and you—that's uh, precious resource. That's what you want to try to um, answer these questions as quickly as possible. And actually, quite often, that is linked to how much time you spend really thinking carefully about the question. Have you posed the question in a way that will give a yes or no answer, or will give a very clear 
readout, a very clear answer uh, during the analysis. And that's where a lot of the, uh, the creativity and kind of planning a sequence experiments that will um, get you as quickly as possible that answer. Because it is, after all, it's not only time, it's competitive, right? We're competing right. with all the other scientists around the globe. And um, you don't, it's just like in the newspaper business that the one, uh, you know, one entity gets the lead uh, story, right? Everyone else is kind of following. It's not, being second isn't nearly as being well, David, thank you. We really appreciate your time today. Um, going through, first of all, you know the the what you're researching and what your students are doing, and then also that whole um, design and test and redesign um, process. That was that's very helpful. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it uh, hopefully the listeners can really uh, take that to heart, and and I. One other comment is to, because that whole set of experiments you're, uh, you're trying to put in place, you always need to do controls. What that means is a, um, there's a, a so-called positive control, which is a test where you, you already know the answer and the answer is yes. So you build that into your experiment so that when you do that test, that tells you if you see a yes answer, now you know your test is working. And if you get a no answer, you know your test is bad. So that's what's called a positive control. And then you also have to have the inverse. You have to have a negative control, an experiment. You know that the answer is no. And if you do the test and it comes out yes, again tells you there's something wrong with the uh with your uh, design and so those are really key those controls are key and it's really important to do those first because um I've, i'm going to give you two perspectives on this one is the time perspective that i was just talking about if you let's say in the uh, positive sense, you get a yes answer from your test and you did your, your real experiment, the one that is going to really answer uh, whether your design is good, your new molecule is good, and you get a yes answer, you get all excited and you do the next experiment, the next experiment, and finally you do the control and you realize that all of it is a, what's called a false positive it was actually something wrong with the way you were measuring. And actually all along, you were uh, collecting useless data. That feels really bad. <laughs> it's like a lie detector when you calibrate a lie detector for your, for your research. Exactly. Or in today's uh, world and coronavirus testing, where, you know, the news is that, you know, even the very best tests are only 90% accurate, right? So that 
you know, one in 10 people out there may have a reading that says they're negative and they're actually positive. Um, so it, it, it's crucial, actually. Um, that's a way to kind of really bring it home to um, you to what's current. Mm-hmm. But I think the uh, temptation when you're so excited, because if you're a scientist, you're you um, at this you know, when you're at, at this level, you're really driven to explore new phenomena. And when you have led yourself down a garden path like that, and you uh, realize all the money and time you've wasted, it's a lesson you never forget. But it's even better if you're a young scientist and learn to always do the controls first. <laughs> That's a nice way of getting back to that, right? Now. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you again. We we appreciate yes, you. Thank we you. really appreciate you taking the time for this. And okay. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. An outstanding on review. iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Tweet us your science questions. At Purdue SOS. Until next time, be super and remember you are someone's hero. Boiler up. Hammer down.